Uh, real quick reminder, I think we mentioned it Sunday, but we didn't mention it tonight. Uh, there is a prayer quilt in the kitchen uh, for Drew Hoagland. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, what it is, it's a quilt, and it has uh, little strings on there. And you can go in there and say a prayer for Drew. And as you say the prayer, you kind of tie a little knot, and then that prayer quilt is given to Drew, and it shows him being covered in prayer. So uh, Rich is going to go up tomorrow and uh, pay a visit to them, and he's going to take that quilt with him. So if you want to get a chance to pray for Drew tonight, you can go in there after the service and uh, pray over the prayer quilt, and then that will be delivered to them tomorrow to show them being covered in prayer. So, hey, let's do a smart thing. Let's have a quick word of prayer before we get going here. Lord, as we just get to some, uh, just the good stuff here in the book of Revelation, we just uh, pray that your hand be upon it, your blessing would be upon it. Lord, lots of hurting families, lots of sickness, lots of tough situations. In the name of Jesus, just be with each one of them, Lord. And we just thank you for the time to be here in your name. Amen. Alrighty, Revelation 19. Now, last week we stopped at verse 10, so we're going to be picking up here in verse 11. Lord willing, time willing. We'll get through all of chapter 19. And it's an exciting chapter uh, because Jesus is returning. Not, not really tonight, but in the teaching, Jesus is returning. And so it's exciting to finally get to this point because we have been going through Revelation for a very long time. And basically since about chapter 6 through chapter 19, we've had about 13 chapters of death and destruction and judgment all building up to this point of the second coming of Christ. Now, just a couple quick reminders. There, we got a few slides here, and these are all slides we've used before, but I just want to remind us of some of them. Uh, Dustin, if you want to put the first one up there. Now, we gave this sheet out, I think, back in week one, chapter one, because we're going to talk tonight about the second coming. And just a quick reminder, second coming versus the rapture. Second coming, left side, Christ steps foot on the earth. He literally is physically returning to the earth where the rapture, he meets us in the air. The rapture is at the beginning of the tribulation that sets off the seven-year period of the tribulation. The second coming is where he literally comes down. Second coming, Christ is returning to reign. Once we get through chapter 19, chapter 20 is about the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus will literally reign on the earth for a thousand years. The earth will finally have the king that Jesus was supposed to be. So for a thousand years... He will literally reign on earth. Now, for the church, the body of Christ, for those that have been raptured out, we get to reign with him. And we'll get to that next week. Whereas the rapture, Christ is returning just to take the church, the body of Christ, out to take us home to heaven. Last point, we return with Christ in the second coming, whereas in the rapture, we go home with Christ. So just a couple quick reminders there on the difference between these two. Some people call it the first advent and the second advent, the first coming, second coming. What we're dealing with here is the second coming of Christ. Go to the next slide real quick, Dustin. Just a quick reminder. This is the first picture we showed. This is how we normally think of Jesus. For some reason, we think of the Gospels. Jesus is always walking around this way. He usually has a lamb on his shoulder. You know, the beard's really trimmed up. He looks really good. Now, second coming, next slide. This is what Jesus is in the book of Revelation. Once again, this is not a real picture, but this is what Jesus is in the book of Revelation. He is the conquering king. The whole point of Revelation is bringing us to this point of chapter 19 of Jesus is returning, and he's returning as the conquering king. He has spent the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments doing just that, judging the earth. Thousands of years of sin is being judged. And so therefore, he is now returning to reclaim what is rightfully his, the earth. As we've said numerous times here in the book of Revelation, the Bible makes it clear that Satan is the god of this age with a little g and the ruler of this world. It's not because Satan overpowered God. I don't want to make it sound that way at all. What it was is when sin entered the world, the world was given over to sin. Well, Jesus came to die on the cross to defeat that sin problem, and now he's returning in the second coming to reclaim the world, the second coming. And the next slide here real quick, Dustin. We put this up, I believe, the first week also. 
Jesus came the first time in humiliation. He will return in exaltation. He came the first time to serve. He will return to be served. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He will return as the conquering king. And that's what we're going to focus on here tonight. So as we get to the second coming, this is what we have been building up to and talking about for weeks. One commentator I read said, by the time you get to Revelation 19, you almost feel guilty. You have spent so many chapters talking about seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, and then there's one little lesson on the return of Christ. It should probably be the other way around. You should probably just briefly hit the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments and focus weeks and weeks and weeks on the idea of Christ actually returning. So this is the second coming, the literal return of Christ where he's going to come and set foot on the earth, set up a millennial kingdom. He's literally going to reign on the earth for, from Jerusalem, and we'll get on to that next week, for a thousand years. What a blessing that's going to be. So before we get into verse 11, is there any quick questions, comments on second coming versus rapture, making sure we understand the difference between those two? Are we all kosher? Very good. Let's go find out what happens. Verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the climactic scene, if you want to look at it from that perspective. This is a Hollywood movie. It would be in slow motion. It would be a really cool, funky orchestra thing going on in the background. And it would be really neat lighting. This is what we have been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. Since Jesus died, rose again, and said he's coming back, this is what the world has been waiting for. In fact, the Bible says we have been groaning to this point. We're moaning and waiting for the return of Christ. Seriously, listen to how many prayer requests tonight were just about just pain and suffering, be it emotionally, spiritually, or physically. We're ready to be done on this world. We're ready to be done on this earth. And with the second coming of Christ, it's all over. It's finally all over. He's going to come back, and I'm getting ahead of myself here about the millennial reign, but he's coming back to make the wrongs right. Look how he's coming. In that last phrase of verse 11, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Like we showed those little pictures up there. The first time we got him with the lamb, the suffering savior. The second time with the sword. He's coming back to make war. Now the way we put this all together, and this is really from verses 17 through 21, is it looks like Christ returns at the peak of the battle of Armageddon. That you have all these hundreds of millions of armies now coming together that we've studied about over the last few weeks when we did our topical in Armageddon all the way back to Revelation 16. We brought all this together. And so what happens is you have all of the armies of the world coming together, meeting in the Valley of Megiddo. Actually, Dustin, let's put that last slide up here real quick. Um, that's just a quick one right there to show you where the Valley of Megiddo is, where the Battle of Armageddon will happen. You can see where Jerusalem is, West Bank, Nazareth, etc. So just get you a little bit of a visual of where that is actually at in the world. So Jesus returns at this peak of the Battle of the Valley of Armageddon, and he, he destroys them. It's coming back to make war. Now before we think this is angry, upset, etc., look how he's coming at the end of verse 11. And righteousness. This is righteousness. This is right. Because the world has sinned, and so therefore the world has sinned, that sin has to be judged because the Antichrist and the false prophet has taken over. This has to be judged, and that's why he's coming back to do this. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember when you see that idea of fire in the Bible, what does that represent? Judgment. He's coming back in judgment. He's not coming in anger. 
He's not coming out of spite, saying, I can't wait to slaughter people. He's coming in judgment. He's coming in righteousness. And look at also the description. Jump back to verse 11. Faithful and true. What an amazing thing. Faithful and true. This world is uncertain, is it not? There's really nothing or anybody you can trust in this world. Even your closest friends, your spouse, your parents, they, they will all let you down. There's only one thing in this world that is faithful and true, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when he's faithful and true, what's he faithful and true about? He's coming. He's promised this for thousands of years. Well, it's finally happening. He's faithful and true. He said, I will make the wrongs right. He said, I will judge the sin. He said, he will come back to get us. He said, he'll set up his kingdom. Well, all these promises are being fulfilled here. So therefore, he is faithful and true. And he's riding the white horse, the victorious symbol of the general coming back from battle. So here he is coming to make war. He's victorious. He's faithful and true. He's coming in judgment, verse 12. And on his head were many crowns, verse 12. This represents the authority that he has over the world. And verse 13, a robe dipped in blood, the blood of his salvation, I should say, the salvation that he bought for with us. And his name is called the Word of God. This takes us back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's kind of interesting. One of the names that God uses to describe himself is the word. What an interesting word for that. Because if you think about our English language, if I pick a word, just say tree, you guys all know what a tree looks like. So I don't have to show you a picture of a tree. I just say tree. You visualize a tree in your mind. Well, Jesus is the word. So if we want to visualize who God is, it's Jesus. And he's the word. So when we want to describe God, he's the word to describe God is Christ. He is the word to show us what God is, because he's God incarnate in flesh that came back. So he is the word of God. Verse 14, we get to come along too. Look how we're dressed, fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, some people may be thinking I'm making too big of a point about this. If you have little kids, what question have you been asked by little kids? Are there animals in heaven, right? If you ever want to know if there's animals in heaven, you can guarantee without a fact that there's horses in heaven. Verse 14. That's what I always tell people. So if little kids come up to me and say, are there animals in heaven? I say yes. And I can back it up with scripture, Revelation 19, 14. Now some of you that want to be a real bear and get deeper on that, you're just are mean, nasty Grinches. And I don't want to talk to you about it. Keep it simple. There's animals in heaven, and you can go from there. So my uh, Kenan right now is so excited because in heaven he wants to play with the hippopotamus. I don't know why, but that's what he's excited about. So I let him have that excitement. I don't know if there's a hippo in heaven. I know there's horses, so I'm just going to take it and kind of run with it a little bit there. But we're coming back, verse 14. Know what we get to do in verse 14. We just get to follow Jesus. I like that. I, I love no responsibility. <laughs> Isn't that just the greatest thing in the world? I have no responsibility with the second coming of Christ. The only responsibility I have is make sure I'm dressed in fine linen that's white and make sure I can get on my horse. Which the few times I've ever been on a horse, that is a little difficult for me to do. So if that's the only thing I have to worry about for all of eternity, I'm cool with that. Because I just get to verse 14, follow Christ. For all you type A firstborns out there that think the world revolves around your shoulders, it doesn't. Verse 14, just follow Christ. How simple is life when you just follow Christ? Where he goes, you go. When he stops, you take a stop. If he makes a left, you make a left. Just follow Christ. We run into problems in our lives and marriages where we get ahead of the Lord. Verse 14 keeps it so simple. Be dressed in white, which shows righteousness in the Lord, and you just follow 
Jesus. I do nothing at the second coming. Absolutely nothing. I, I just get to sit on the sidelines and watch this amazing thing happen. I've shared this story before on this point, but I remember reading an article years ago in Sports Illustrated when Michael Jordan, I think, won his uh, sixth title in the NBA, that they won the game, there's this huge uh, celebration on the court, and one of the bench warmers came out, grabbed Michael Jordan, and said, we won. And, and remember the quoted Michael Jordan is saying, as he stopped celebrating, looked at him, the bench warmer said, I won, what did you do? And the whole point was, in sports, you can do absolutely nothing, you may not even get in the game, but as long as you ride the bench, you still get to win. Well, this is the same thing you hear at the second coming. I haven't done anything. <laughs> Jesus did it all. I just get to ride the bench, and I just get to follow along in the victory. And how absolutely wonderful is that? To think that we get to be included in the second coming of Christ is an absolutely amazing thing. He does all the fighting. Look at verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, this is not literal, I don't think, in any way whatsoever. I think the great reference to go with this is Hebrews 4.12, where it says that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. When he returns there in verse 15, the way he strikes the nations, as it says in the New King James, is he strikes it with his word, with his mouth, the word of God. This is something that we, I think, ignore too much. There is a power in the Word of God. This is why, as a pastor, I'm constantly nagging you and annoying you to be in the Word. That's your weapon. And if you think of that passage in Hebrews 4, verse 12, the Word of God is, is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's alive and active. It cuts. Generally speaking, a sword is not used for defense. A sword is used for offense. You use a shield for defense. The purpose of the Word is that we're supposed to be attacking with it. And I don't mean attacking, meaning destroying people, but that is the weapon that God gave us. If you remember correctly, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus battled the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, how did he always defeat him? With the word. Too often as Christians, we don't know our word. So when we get into a battle, we don't got our sword out. We're not ready. The way the enemy is defeated here at the battle of Armageddon is with the word of God. There's power in the word. One of my favorite little points on the word is, if you remember the power of, let's go first with God's name. We always use this example of the book of John. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus and they said, um, you know, we come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, whom are you seeking? They said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And remember Christ's response in the book of John was, he said, I am. That's all he said. When they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am. And you guys remember what happened. As soon as he said, I am, what happened? They all got knocked down. Now, why do they get knocked down? Because by Jesus saying, I am, what he's really saying is, go back to Exodus 3, when Moses said, who should I say sent me to the Israelites? God said, say that I am that I am. And so when Jesus said, I am, what he was really claiming was deity, the name of God, by just Jesus saying, I am, knocked down the Roman legion. That's power in the name of God. Now, take that point and go one step further. In the book of Psalms, God says, I honor my word above my name. So if God says the name of God is so powerful that the Jews in the Old Testament wouldn't even write it, if the name of God is so powerful by Jesus just saying, I am in the New Testament, it can knock down an army, imagine how powerful the word of God is where God says that's even more powerful than my name. But yet we have this book right here, and let's just be honest, we're not in it. And we have every reason in the word, in the world I should say we don't have time, I don't get it, I don't understand it, it's boring, fill in the blank. Guys, the most powerful weapon God has given you is his word. It's a sword. It's sharp. And I cannot stress to you enough, as a, as a born-again believer in Christ, be in the word. One of the first things I usually ask somebody, if they come into my office for counseling, and if their life is kind of falling apart, and they just feel distressed, discouraged, depressed, how's your walk going? To a T, what's everybody's answer? Not good. How, 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 how's your time in the word? I'm not. 
Right there. Right there. Now, let's be honest. When we're feeling emotionally and spiritually depressed and discouraged and let down, the last thing we usually want to do is get in the Word. But this is our medicine. It's just like when your mom used to make you force the medicine down. Sometimes you've got to do this with the Word. You have to force feed. But being in the Word is powerful. And if you don't believe that, then please explain to me in Revelation 19.15, how does Jesus defeat hundreds of millions of people by the Word of God? What an amazing thing is it on it. So verse 16, it sums it up for us. He is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. I like that. He is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. What a powerful statement he is. It's amazing. The second coming of Christ that we've been talking about for months, that Revelation has been building up to, that we've been waiting thousands of years for, only lasts about five verses. What a powerful thing it is. Anybody have any quick questions, comments on the actual second coming here of verses 11 through 16 that we've read and studied thus far? All righty. Well, let's talk about the background that's going on when he returns. Battle of Armageddon, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Just stop real quick there. Is not verse 19 one of the dumbest things you've ever read in your life? The beast, the kings of the earth, the armies gathered together, come to make war against Jesus. Now seriously, what is going through their minds? There, there, are, there are, See, this, this battle of Armageddon that's going on, this valley of Megiddo, there's so many different things that can be going on. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I don't want to repeat everything. You know, it looks like there's a little bit of a um, rebellion going on against the Antichrist with this. There's a group, an army, trying to go attack Jerusalem with this. But there's ultimately this idea, verse 19, of we're going to defeat God. I don't even know what to say to that. It, it, that what an absurd thought that they're going to defeat God. The closest thing I can think of, is it says in the book of Proverbs, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So when you run into that person that says, well, you know what, I, you know, I don't know about the whole Jesus thing, but I believe in God, I believe in heaven, and, and when I die, I guess we'll just figure it out then. What a scary, and, and I can't think of a better word, so forgive me, what a scary, dumb thing to say. Hebrews makes it clear, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is, this is so sad. They think there's going to be hundreds of millions of people. I don't know what they're going to have. Are they going to have their little swords drawn? Are they going to have their guns pointed to the sky? And they're going to see the heavens open? And they're going to see this white horse appearing out? And they're going to fight him? Oh my goodness, the hardness and just the stupidity of mankind. Verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in the presence by which he deceived those who received the mark in the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. That's a whole point within itself, and we'll get to that in chapter 20 when we talk about the great white throne judgment. What a, that, that, that is a troubling verse. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The eternity of hell. Eternity of hell. Verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword, which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. If you remember correctly, last week we talked about this back in, where was it? Um, verse 9 of chapter 19. He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We talked about the beauty of that. We talked about how there's this idea that we as a church are the bride of Christ, 
And just as nowadays where you have this engagement period, you have the wedding ceremony, and then you have the reception. And we talked about how the same thing happened back during Bible times. They had this betrothment period, the ceremony, and then they had this marriage supper feast. And what a blessing it was in verse 9 to be part of the marriage supper feast. And we talked about how that represents the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, invited to the wedding of Jesus and the bride. But did you catch this here in verse 17? Look at the last sentence there. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Very simply put, and I'm not trying to say this to make light of this, you're going to have to eat at one of those suppers. Well, verse 9, you get to eat at the supper. Verse 17, you're eating at the supper. I don't even know if that's the proper word, eating. I just probably screwed up a really good point there. But... I don't remember what it's supposed to be. But verse 9, you're either eating there, or verse 17, you're going to be ate there. Now, I don't say that to make a joke. It's kind of like we throw around that whole thing of you want smoking or non-smoking for all of eternity. Okay, that's, that's funny, that's cute. This is serious. I mean, there's, there, there, you're either going to be ate, or you're going to be eating. And this is the whole thing of eternity. Which supper are you deciding to make an RSVP to? And so if you choose to reject Christ, if you choose to make it through the tribulation to this part of the valley of Armageddon here, it's one of these things of they're going to be destroyed, ultimately completely destroyed. And the, the amount of just death that's going to be there. And once again, before we sit here and say, how can a God of love do this? If you're thinking that, not to be mean, you're not remembering any of the points that we've said here for the previous umpteen months. Because wherever there's judgment, there's grace in the book of Revelation. We just got done studying, what was it? I believe in chapter, oh, chapter 15. The whole point of chapter 15 is the idea of grace and grace and more grace. And chapter 14 is grace and grace and more grace. Before God gets into this bold judgment Armageddon thing, he's trying to see everybody that's still alive to be saved. And as we just talked Sunday, we mentioned that passage in Ezekiel 33. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not rejoicing over the death of this. He's rejoicing in the second coming. But I believe the heart of the Lord is broken when all these people reject him and want to fight him. This second coming is an amazing thing of celebration, but also what a destruction it is in verses 17 through 21 of these people rejecting Christ and ultimately trying to fight him at this battle of Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo, and it will be ultimately destroyed. So the second coming is something we have looked forward to, we have rejoiced with, and what a blessing it is. But at the same time, for the second coming to happen, there's going to be hundreds of millions of people that are going to taste death because of their rejecting of the Lord. Which goes back to the point we've said every single study here when we finished up Revelation. We can sit here and study out these prophecies. We can sit here and talk about the second coming and rapture and bold judgments and all this stuff. And we can walk out of here smarter. Truth of the matter is, first off, are you born again and saved? If you're not born again and saved, you want to be born again and saved through Christ. But more importantly, where's your heart where it comes to those that are lost? We all work with people that may not know Christ. We see what the outcome of this is in verses 17 through 21. Our unsafe friends and loved ones are either going to be eating at the marriage supper with us in verse 9 or they're going to be at the supper of verse 17. We having this information, we now have this responsibility to say, I want to go share Christ with all my unsafe friends and loved ones because I care about them and I don't want to see what's going to happen to them. And also for me personally, I want to live my life for the Lord knowing that he is returning, knowing the second coming is coming. I want to be that bride of Christ for him. I want to be everything I can be for him because I know the spiritual responsibility that I have. It's not there to scare us. It's not there to frighten us. It's there to spur us 
on. But Lord, I want to be ready for you when you return. Does anybody have any final questions, comments about here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is the end of the... Yes. No, the great white throne is for all non-believers. They will appear before the great white throne. Yes, they will appear. Yes, thank you for trying to jump ahead of chapter when I said let's not try to get into that tonight. Well, I, I wanted to end it with verse 21 of chapter 19, and obviously you don't want to do that tonight. So, is it the end of them? It is the end of them in the sense of they are now in eternal judgment. But yes, they will make an appearance before the great white throne there in verses 11 on, which we'll get to next week. So we're both right. It's the end of them, but yet they will appear before the great white throne again later on. So, yeah. Let's start times a million. You know, we, you know, actually, just, just so you know, back when we were doing the three weeks in the row of the Raiders of Lost Ark, I actually got a picture of Indiana Jones. And I was waiting for someone to make a reference. We're going to put him up on the PowerPoint, but now we've lost that. Um, I just want to tell you, as a kid, I remember watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I remember seeing that ending, and that was just totally freaky, to say the least. You know, it's going to probably be worse than that. But uh, yes, it's the glory of God. It's God coming back, and it's utter, ultimate destruction. I mean, there's just, there's just no way around that. And, and it, it's hard to find the balance in our head of we're rejoicing over Christ returning, but at the same time it is returning, there's all these people dying. But all these people are dying because what did we just study out back in, uh, what was it, chapter 16? Chapter 16, verse 9, they did not repent. Verse 11 of chapter 16, they did not repent. These people have chosen this path. Chosen this path. Yeah, John. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they've chosen their side. There, there's no doubt about it. Um, they have chosen their side. By the time you reach this battle of Armageddon here, these people have chosen their side to align themselves with the beast and the false prophet. They've taken the mark of the beast, and they, they have rejected God. They have. They've reached this point. And, and once again, when we talked about uh, the Battle of Armageddon back in chapter 16, we weren't saying this as a joke, but we used that example of, well, imagine you had all the bugs in one area. It's easier just to kill them all with one big stomp. Well, that's exactly what happens here. They have all come together to one area, and this is where Christ returns, and he takes care of them in all one fatal blow. But these are all people that have willfully rejected Jesus as their Savior. Anybody else have anything I want to say before we go close up? Okay, chapter 20. Oh, sorry, yeah, tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe verse 14 is going to be just believers, and that's my personal opinion. There is a reference, if I remember correctly, in the book of Jude. Let me see if I can find this real quick. There is a reference somewhere in the book of Jude that also is kind of a verse that goes along with this, and I'm not seeing this right off the top of my head, which you would think that would be easy to find when there's only 25 verses in the book of Jude. Some people have thought that verse 14 also does include the angels, possibly. When I look at verse 14, when I see this idea of clothed in white and etc., I look at that as that white showing redemption, which would be us as believers. If the angels want to tag along in verse 14, I'm cool with that. You know, But I look at it more as just believers, but I do know some commentators also believe there could be uh, angels involved with that as well, too. Anybody else have anything they want to say here before we close up? Oh, I tell you, really looking forward to chapter 20. Chapter 20 is just, I think, an amazing chapter. You have Satan being bound for a thousand years. You have the millennial reign of Christ. You have the great white throne judgment. What an unbelievable chapter on stuff. And then you have two chapters of eternity in chapters 21 and 22 where we get into what eternity is, what heaven's going to be like. I tell you guys, these last few chapters in Revelation are some amazing, amazing things. But once again, let's remember the whole purpose and point of this. This information that we have is information that spurs us on to be a light and a witness in all that we do and all that we say. So let's go ahead and pray here. Heavenly Father, should we just read these passages about your second coming? Lord, I pray that is just something that encourages us. There's so much hurt, so much sorrow, so much just sickness going around right now. Gosh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we look forward to your return. As we think of that passage where it says, Lord, come quickly. 
Lord, we're ready for this to be over. But Lord, we know the longer that you wait, the more opportunities there are for people to get saved. And that's what matters more than anything. Lord, in our areas and times of weakness, strengthen us that we may seek you. And Lord, help us be a light and witness for you in all that we say and all that we do. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Quick reminder there, uh, prayer quote in the kitchen for Drew Hoagland. And uh, if you guys want to take advantage of that,